In Mark chapter 14, verse 24, it says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Today the chief priests are delighted, and Simon has the worst title ever. This is day 17. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Well, welcome back to day 17 of the Journey Through Mark podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang hey. and Melissa Payne. Hey. Hey, guys. Your names are really long. Do you have any nicknames that I can start using? I have a lot of nicknames. <laughs> what <laughs> kind of nicknames do you have? What kind of nicknames? I mean, I get called a lot of little things like Big B or Brendo or B or... <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> in college, I was called Buzz. Sometimes Buzzy. Buzz. Sometimes Buzz Squatch. Just Buzz everything. What? Buzz Squatch? <laughs> Wait, time out. Nicknames always just evolve. But it was, right, it was but buzz. where did Buzz even come from? Too many things to explain what? right now. Yeah. Is it because you're like a bee? <laughs> Buzz like a bee? <laughs> Busy you, little bee. Remind somebody of like the character Someone, from Home Alone? Actually, so when I was playing basketball with a guy, like he thought I like swooped in a little bit too much like Buzz Lightyear. And so he just started calling me Buzz. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so it is space Buzz reference. Lightyear. It is Buzz. That's really neat. Not even joking. Yep. That's not a horrible nickname. I'm not going to lie. I've heard way worse. Yep. So Melissa, what about you? I would say just like a normal nickname. A lot of my friends call me Mel, you know, short for Melissa. But I worked at a summer camp for like five years and I got the nickname Pain Train. So that was fun. And then it kind of went into college and people called me Pain or Pain Train. Do you ever like enter the basketball court with Brendan and be like, hey, Buzz, you want to try to uh, (laughs) take on the Pain Train? I feel like you guys in basketball would be pretty funny. Yeah, it does kind of sound like a basketball or a football nickname or something. At that time, also, I forgot about this. That's when I got bling bling in my ears and they started calling me blang blang. So <laughs> oh, I'm bling bling. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's your first initial and, and your last a, name. There is, is there is a basketball game where I had to like tape my ears and I am gonna to need yeah. I'm gonna need to see proof that you had bling in yeah, your we ears. Don't a photo of that. <laughs> I, when we find that we're gonna post it on our Instagram. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. That's awesome, Tyler. What's your nickname? I have one nickname that really just resulted from me being old and not understanding text message lingo <laughs> these days. <laughs> what? So I had a guy who was doing some work for me and we were just having a conversation over text and he ended with T.Y. friend. And most people know that that means thank you, friend. But I was like, oh, (laughs) he called me Thai friend. That's kind of (laughs) nice. And I continued the conversation for a while, just glancing past it. And then I asked one of the friends I was with, I was like, hey, look, he called me Thai friend. We must be friends. And they're like, no, dude, that means thank you, friend. That's not your nickname. (laughs) Well, you still might be friends. I mean, we are friends, but it's not like a a nickname. Not a Thai friend. He wasn't calling you Thai. Yeah, I wasn't getting a nickname out of this friendship. Yeah, but that nickname is now sticking for this friendship. So... It is stuck for a lot of people now. They're, they ironically call me Thai friend, mainly just to show how old I am. But today there are some bad nicknames, and I'm referring most closely to Simon. But we'll get into that in the scripture a little bit. But first, Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for day 17? Day 17, Symbolic Meals. Today's reading describes two of Jesus's final meals. These meals both include symbolic actions that anticipate what will happen to Jesus. In the first meal, Jesus is anointed with perfume, an act that foreshadows his death and subsequent enthronement. In the second meal, famously known as the Last Supper, the symbolism goes one step further. 
At this meal, Jesus reveals not only that he would soon die, but also why he had to die. He gives us clues about the meaning of his death. These clues come to us through a number of allusions and references back to Old Testament passages. The first clue is that the Last Supper was most likely a Passover dinner. Passover was an annual holiday that commemorated how God had liberated the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Faithful Jews celebrated this holiday by eating a symbolic dinner. Every item on the menu represented a key moment of the Israelites' escape. In Mark 14, Jesus participates in this meal, but he transforms the meaning of some items because he wants his followers to understand that his death would be the means by which a new Passover would occur. Their sin had put them in exile. Jesus' death would free them from their exile. Two more clues come to us in his interpretation of the wine. He says in Mark 14, 24, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The phrase blood of the covenant is a reference to the covenant God made with Israel in Exodus 24. That covenant had been established with sacrificial blood. Here, Jesus indicates that he is making a new covenant, a new agreement with his people, but it would now be through his blood. The phrase poured out for many alludes to Isaiah 53, 10-12. Isaiah the prophet wrote that a suffering servant would justify many by bearing their sins. Here, Jesus implies that he is that suffering servant. Together, these allusions give us a glimpse into why Jesus had to die. Jesus freed us so that we could live as covenant partners in his kingdom with him. His self-giving way of freeing us was by taking our sins upon himself. For day 17, we're reading Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Melissa, want to take us through our discussion questions for day 17? First question. In Mark 14, 9, Jesus promises that the woman's act of devotion would be told wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world. This promise is fulfilled by the inclusion of her story in the gospel of Mark. Why do you think Jesus thought it was important for her story to be told as part of the gospel? How should Jesus' statement influence the way we share the gospel with others? Second question. Mark 14, 3-5 indicates that the perfume the woman poured on Jesus was worth more than a year's wages. Her display may seem excessive, but when we compare it with Mark 14, 24, where Jesus says His blood will be poured out for many, her action comes into its proper perspective. He gave the best of what He had for us, so we owe the best of what we have to Him. In light of what Jesus has done for you, how are you returning devotion to Him? Are you bringing him the best of what you have? So we got Simon the leper with the worst nickname ever, and we've got the delighted teachers of the law. But that's not really what I want to focus on today. The questions I have are about more of this backstory for the Jewish people. What is the covenant that the Jewish people would know about during this time? Jesus is using all this covenant language, and there's a lot about blood, and there's some communion stuff in here. But what is the covenant that Jesus is talking about here? The most important thing we can really observe about this story is that it's set in the context of Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And Passover specifically was a festival which celebrated time that God had delivered the Israelites, saved them from their bondage in Egypt, freed them from their slavery. And this holiday celebrated that, commemorated it every year. The Israelites would eat a certain meal, which memorialized what happened then. And at the original Passover, when God brought them out of their slavery, he established this covenant. A covenant is basically an agreement in this particular covenant, we oftentimes compare it to what we call ancient Near Eastern. <laughs> you guys are going to laugh at me now. Ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties. Basically, it was an Wait, agree- what did you just say? <laughs> what words did you I just say? I, I know I shouldn't have said that. It's similar to treaties we know from the ancient world between superior kings and their subordinates. So the people they conquered. You know, if you're going to be under my jurisdiction, here's how life is going to go, right? This is the form that God used to sort of establish his relationship with the Israelites, not because he'd conquered them, actually quite the opposite. He saved them, which says a lot about who he is in comparison with kings of the ancient world. And this is actually when we think about Jesus and how he contrasts with kings of the ancient world. But this was an agreement he made with the Israelites. He saves them, liberates them and says, now that you are my saved people, now that you've been liberated, here's how life is going to go. And that's essentially what a covenant is. 
Now, what's important for this passage is recognizing that that covenant was sealed with blood. There was a sacrifice that was made and blood was sprinkled and those actions sort of sealed the covenant between God and the people. Here now, we see Jesus in the context of Passover having a meal with his disciples, and he talks about this new covenant he's going to establish. And what stands out is it's actually going to be a covenant in his blood. So when Jesus starts talking about this new covenant with his blood, what does this mean for us? Like, what does it mean to be living under a new covenant? And why would this be revolutionary for the people hearing it during the day? I mean, there are a few things. First off, it was something that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. You see this in Jeremiah, especially where the prophet talks about how one day God would establish a new type of covenant. And people kind of waited for this for a number of centuries, didn't really see it come into effect quite like this. So it's the fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament scriptures. But also what's significant is when God established that covenant with the ancient Israelites, in Exodus 19, four through six, he talks about how he would make them into a kingdom of peace, a royal people, a holy nation who would represent him to the world. They were given dignity, value, but also the purpose of being like kings and queens who represented him to the world. And I think this is important for us because what it teaches us about the covenant Jesus is now establishing is one, again, he's the one establishing it with his blood. It says a lot about what he's doing, his own sacrifice, how his sacrifice frees us. It's like a new Passover. We're being delivered from exile in sin, but it also means that we now are given a new purpose. See, when God through Jesus brings us out of our exile to sin, he now brings us into the kingdom of God in order to be covenant partners with him, in order to be like that kingdom of priests that the book of Exodus talks about. So now we are raised up to be like kings and queens who represent him on the earth. Well, and that's something that it seems like this woman from the day before really sort of picked up on because she gave what is a pretty extravagant gift by pouring this nard on Jesus's head. And it's symbolic for sure, but it's also just like pretty dramatic, really ridiculous and (laughs) countercultural for the day too. What's going on here? Why is she doing this at all? It's rooted in, in something of a custom where people would put oil on others. And especially in this Passover context where you have like all sorts of sacrifices and tens and hundreds of thousands of people showing up in the city of Jerusalem, things start to smell a lot. And so she's lathering perfume on him as sort of this gift, as this way of giving honor to this special guest. But what I think is fascinating about this story is Jesus doesn't really interpret her action that way. Even though she's doing this as an act of devotion, as a way of giving honor to this special guest. One, Jesus points out in verse eight, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So he interprets it as a way of preparing for his burial. When people would die at that time, they would oftentimes put spices and perfumes on the bodies. Because I mean, after time, the body starts to decay and have a smell. And so he knows what's just around the corner and he interprets it as his burial preparation even before he's died, which I think is interesting. But here's the other thing that I find fascinating. In the Old Testament, King were anointed with oil. And what she does, she anoints his head with something like oil, this perfume. And again, we've been talking through this whole book about how Jesus has come as the Messiah King, who's coming to establish the kingdom of God as King, but he isn't doing it in the way that people would have expected. He isn't a typical type of King. The way he becomes King is through his death. And what we see in this act are these two veins of thought coming together. What readers would have picked up on is he's being anointed, sort of established as king, but Jesus understands this anointing as being a sort of preparation for his burial. So he becomes king as he dies, which again, coheres with what we've been learning and discovering throughout the whole book of Mark. 
Well, and he really defends this action on behalf of this woman, too. Like, everybody's ridiculing her and berating her almost, and he kind of stands up for what she does. It's that dramatic of an action, too. I think what I love about this is that this woman was just being obedient to what she felt like she was supposed to do. And yet it had so much more meaning than she probably had any idea of the act of pouring this on Jesus's head. And so to me, it reminds me that sometimes our obedience and being faithful to what God is calling us to can have such a different outcome when we just say yes to it. When it has so much deep impact and meaning that we aren't aware of too, like God can use us in ways just by being obedient that we don't even know the full ramifications of it until later. And that's kind of what happens the next day too. Jesus shares in this meal Mm -hmm. and he has this deep metaphoric symbolic action of breaking bread, which Mm -hmm. when you read this passage in isolation, it's like, oh, you're the bread. Okay. But Mark has so many references to Jesus being the bread that it's almost like, okay, this is like a continuation of that metaphor and it's really profound. And now we have this idea of communion. But really, what is communion? Like, what is it? Why do we celebrate it? Help me out here. So there's some debate about whether this is a Passover or something like a Passover dinner that actually occurs a day before it. But if it's a Passover dinner, which I think Mark leads us to believe, then what's significant is these things, these parts of the meal, the Passover meal would have had symbolic significance. The bread would have memorialized certain things for Jews and also the wine. And they would have said well, things about- Well, what does about- the hummus mean? And like the olives? Because <laughs> that's what I'm- Where's the feta? Yeah, can I be the feta? Or <laughs> We'll invite you guys to some Seder dinner sometime. But what's stunning about this story is Jesus reinterprets these. This holiday that historically had been set up to honor what God had done, how he had saved the Israelites from their bondage. Jesus now essentially says, do this in honor of me now. It's really bold, honestly, what he does. He says, these elements that you're about to eat, they now take on new symbolic significance in what I'm about to do for you. And so- So it's not even just that like he is making this metaphor, it's that he's actually reclaiming it from something that is deep in their roots. Like this is something they do every year to celebrate yeah. Passover. He's reclaiming yes. something that has been around for thousands of years. He's claiming, he's transforming a story that was at the core of who they are, their identity, how they would have understood themselves, of people who've been freed, liberated by God for a special purpose. He says, what I'm about to do, you will now commemorate in future years. And this is essentially what we do in communion. Every time we take the bread and drink the cup, we're giving honor to Jesus for what he did and remembering how he liberated us from our own exile. So I'm curious, just for you guys, everybody's faith background, they come from a different place on how they view communion. There's a lot of different interpretations of it, frequencies of it. I don't really care about that so much, but more of like, what does it mean? What does it mean for you guys? What does communion mean personally? When I stop and get to take communion with my church family, it's a moment to just stop and remember what Jesus did for us. You know, it's a time to stop and reflect on just really where my relationship is with Christ in that moment. And even just a moment to ask for forgiveness for some things that I've been struggling with and just really realign my heart back to Jesus and then just be thankful for what He did for us. I would echo all those things. I think throughout most of my life when I've taken communion, like I've reflected again on what Jesus did. I've thought about my own failures and my own need for him and my gratitude for him. 
a new sort of way I've been looking at it lately is actually remembering that this is also a way I express my allegiance to him, that this is one way that I reaffirm this covenant I have with him, that I am now part of his people. Because again, if this is sort of a covenant establishing meal, then when I join into that meal, like I'm affirming again, Jesus, you're my king. And so every time I take those, that's what I also remember the fact that, yeah, I've been freed. Yeah, I've been saved. And I'm thankful for that. But also you are now my Lord. And that requires that I live a certain way. And so if I'm going to take this, that means I got to be really serious about what I confess about Jesus. I totally agree with that. There's a liturgy side of things. It's Mm -hmm. almost like a comfort to being able to come back and do this regularly and Mm -hmm. do it with the same people and understand that this is our allegiance, something that we do that connects us to all other Christians, no matter where we are. And it's a metaphor that allows us to really reflect on the whole story and the whole picture. And I remember when I was little and started taking it, it was all about the visuals and like what Mm. Jesus did to suffer and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think since I've gotten older, communion has become something that isn't something that we just do in church. It's something that I do with people that I am vulnerable with and people that I'm exploring faith with. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing here. Like these disciples that he's close with, has deep relationships with, they're just trying to figure out what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for the story of human history? And that's where I find communion most relevant to me now. Like there's an aspect of doing it in church and in a liturgy, but being among Christian friends and understanding that we're all at different places, but we can all be real with each other. And acknowledging the mystery of faith, it's those moments where I'm able to like share a meal and start exploring what each of us is going through, the thoughts that we have. Brendan, we do this. We just like banter and fight over theology every once in a while, you know? I mean, you should hear <laughs> the, Brendan after a good meal. He gets pretty <laughs> in depth. The table's the best place to have those kind of conversations, though. There's something about sharing food that really allows people to relax and feel comfortable and be real with each other. I mean, Brendan apparently eats very loudly, but now that we can get through that and get over that, <laughs> we can be really real with each other and really vulnerable. And for me, communion is that exploration of faith and even just leaning into the mystery of faith and exploring that with friends. Yeah. And that reminds me, just looking back at Mark again, like you talked about how we've seen this bread theme. He set a table, right? For the Jews, the 5,000. Well, then he set a table for the Gentiles, the 4,000, and welcomed all of them to eat at the table to take of his bread that he was providing for them. And that's essentially what the table looks like today. It's an opportunity for people from all walks of life, from all ethnicities and backgrounds to come together and eat at the same table to be one because we're all gathered and brought together as one under one Lord. For somebody who's never taken communion or faith is new to them, it's probably a unique experience and it's probably a unique thing to witness too. But what is the importance of this for them? If they're listening to this and they're like, I'm just not sure about all of this stuff, what do you say to them? What I would say is that you're always invited. You're always welcome at this table and there are tough things and things we all need to sort out. And I wouldn't just jump into taking this because I think it is a serious thing. I think that again, this is a covenant establishing meal. We are really confessing that Jesus, we believe you are who you say you are and we wanna make you the Lord of our lives, but it's a table that you're always welcome to. And so don't stop with the questions, You know, keep asking, keep exploring. And we're glad that you're reading this and doing this with us. And Jesus is gonna be waiting there too. And I think this is meant to be done with other people. You know, you can do this alone. You can take communion by yourself. But if you look at the first communion, the example that we have, this is meant to be done with other people, with other people that you trust and other people that can speak into your life. And that can be more difficult than you think to do, but it's a pursuit that is worth working hard for, is finding a good group of community to sort through life and sort through faith with. 
No, right now it'll have to be over a Zoom chat, but you know, that's... <laughs> yeah, or FaceTime or a that's phone our, call. That's our know, current reality, but space hasn't separated the three of us and it doesn't have to separate Christians either. Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag willowjourney. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.